Well, um, it's a special welcome, warm welcome to those who are here, um, especially those who are new. Uh, if you're a guest, I want to say thank you for coming and being part of the church, bringing church into uh, this house today. Um, as was mentioned, we have about 11, I think, 11 college students who are up in uh, Virginia right now, and there's a, a conference that um, after service, Pastor Albert and I will be going up to. He'll be leading praise, and I'll be uh, speaking as um, doing part of the speaking there uh, for a college student leadership conference. So if you would keep uh, those folks in prayer, keep us in prayer, that would be really uh, much appreciated. Uh, we'd come back and really be um, excited to continue to live the life that God's called us to live. Uh, it's just been about two weeks since um, the team of 10 people returned from Ecuador. It seems like a lot longer because uh, so much has gone on between now and uh, between then and now. But um, we want to take today and the weeks to come to share and to report back on how God answered your prayers and what God did in the hearts of people in Ecuador, as well as what he did in the hearts of those of us who went, and hopefully in those who sent as well, that God did something good in your hearts as you were praying and, and lifting up the team and lifting up the people of, of Ecuador. So uh, later today, uh, Isaac Lee, uh, one of our high school students, is going to share uh, what he experienced and what he learned and the things that God enabled him to see. And then we're going to see in pictures a slideshow of uh, what our experience there was like. And so as we talk about this in words, I think those pictures will help to crystallize and and clarify some of the things that uh, you may have mental pictures of, and it will uh, present uh, a different picture of what uh, went on, maybe different from what's going on in your mind's eye. So uh, we're going to look at First Thessalonians. We're going to take a break from Ecclesiastes and finish that up next week. I just want to read two verses that I think helps to capture some of the essence of what our, our trip was about. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. This is God's word through the pen of the Apostle Paul. And it would also say in verse 1, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, these three traveling buddies, missionaries, and this is what God's Word says. It says, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. This is God's Word. Uh, verse 8 in particular, I think this helps to capture the essence of what we're feeling. Paul the Apostle in uh, the mid-first century, about 15 years after uh, Jesus Christ was crucified, died, and, and rose again and ascended into heaven, about 15 years after that, Paul and, and Silas and Timothy uh, were on a missionary journey. They got kind of, uh, they left Philippi and they stopped in a city called Thessalonica, which was the main city, it was a Greek capital city of Macedonia, a very important city at the time, and they probably stopped there because there is a sizable Jewish synagogue there. And so it says for three weeks in a row, three Sabbaths, Paul the Apostle preached at the synagogue, and as he was preaching, a number of Jews became converted and, and gave their lives over uh, to Christianity. A few Jews and then uh, some other Greek converts as well, and it says in, in Acts 17 other places that some women were converted as well. So that became the nucleus of the church. And from that place, Paul stayed for a few months, and many more people uh, called out of paganism, out of idolatry, and gave their lives to Jesus Christ to be the master of their lives and to be the forgiver of their sins. And from there, this church began to grow. But from the outset, there was persecution. There were people who didn't like this growing movement of Christians, didn't like this church in Thessalonica. And so there was severe persecution just from every side coming against that little church in Thessalonica. 
And so one day, Acts 17 tells us that these riffraff, these people who are upset and angry at what Paul and Silas and Timothy were doing, came to get Paul and Silas, came to arrest them, came to seize them and to take them away. But instead, they could not get to them, so instead they got a guy named Jason. They got a guy named Jason. They dragged him out of his house. They caused this big riot, and they made him post bond. And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy had no choice but to flee the city of Thessalonica after just a few months. And so you can imagine as they began this congregation, as they began the, the, to see the work of God here, in just a matter of months, they're ripped away from it, and their hearts are beating for them to see how are they going to survive without a pastor? How are they going to survive without leadership? How are they going to survive without anyone teaching them and leading them and guiding them, especially in the face of all of this persecution? And so several times, Paul, Silas, and Timothy tried to go back into Thessalonica, but they couldn't. There was different obstacles in the way, and so Paul couldn't take it any longer. He needed to know what was going on, so he sent Timothy to Thessalonica. And so Timothy spent some time with them and and met up with Paul in silence in Corinth, and Paul was just eager to hear, how are my people doing? How is the church in Thessalonica doing? And to his surprise, Timothy said, you know what? The church is standing firm in the face of persecution. They're living for the Lord Jesus Christ. They're giving, and they're becoming a model of faith to so many other people. And Paul's heart is soaring with delight. And so in about 49 AD, he begins to write this letter to the church in Thessalonica explaining how much he loved them. And so in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives as well. He's saying we shared the gospel in word and in deed. It wasn't just we preached and did a hit and run and then we left, but we shared everything about ourselves with you. And in some way, I think this captures what our time in Ecuador was like. It wasn't merely a proclamation of the gospel. It wasn't merely ministry in word alone, but it was a ministry in word and in deed. How is it that Paul could love and and see these people become so dear to him when he wasn't even with them? He says in chapter 1, verse 2, we always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. And then in verse 3, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is one of the things I tell our shepherds and our teachers all the time. We want to love somebody. We want to grow in our love for them. We have to be praying for them. You cannot pray for someone and not see your heart gravitate and grow in your love for a people. And so Paul, because of his prayers for them, his constant and faithful and devoted prayers for them, these people had become so dear to him. The word that he uses here is like as a nurse takes care of her patients or his patients, this is how he cares for them. But it goes beyond that and says, like a very child of my own, this is how I see you all. You had become so dear because of the kind of prayers that were being lifted up from my heart, from my lips on behalf of the people of Thessalonica. This is why Jesus says, you hate somebody, someone persecuting you, someone's your enemy, then pray for these kinds of people because you cannot help but fall in love with people as you begin to pray for them. And so Paul says, you've become so dear to us that we share not only the gospel of God, but our very lives as well. One of the reasons why I think our team this year felt like there was such a deeper love for the people of Ecuador, I think it goes back to the way that we began to pray. Last year was our first time going to Ecuador, two places that we went, 
There was a, a, a church in Lumbaki that we worked with, and then we crossed the river to an unreached people group called the Kofan in a, in a town called Sinangwe. Two people here. And before the trip, it was our first time going. We'd never been there before. Had in our mind's eye, again, a picture of what it might look like. But our missionary told us, this is what it's going to be like. And so I think her intention was that she wanted us to be scared into prayer. So she said, well, when you cross this river, I remember her telling us it's about a five-minute boat ride. And I remember saying, wow, there's some people in our team who are really afraid of boat rides and afraid of water. And so we said, we need to really pray about this boat ride here. We were also told that we had to wear boots, right, up to covering our calves because there are a lot of snakes in the area. And then she sent us pictures. Everyone was wearing boots, even the little kids. And she said, because there's all kinds of snakes there. We're like, oh, my goodness. And she told us of the many dangers, toils, and snares that we would face when we went down to Ecuador. We went on AccuWeather.com because nobody seemed to know about this town called Lumbaki. And we found out that the weather there was 171 degrees in the summertime when we were going. And we're like, oh my goodness, we're going to roast. And then they said the mosquitoes are so bad that you have to wear long sleeve shirts all the time and jeans all the time. Like, I don't know how we're going to do this in 171 degree heat wearing long sleeves and long pants all the time. And so we were praying and we were praying. They, she talked about how in these, uh, these windy roads, there would be hiding out these Colombian gorillas. And they'd been known to set up traps, ropes. And the cars would have to stop and then they would get out. And especially foreigners, especially foreigners with lots of money, especially foreigners who stand out, they would kidnap us for ransom. Thing, wearing team shirts like we typically do on mission trips, that wearing team shirts is a certain recipe for disaster because they'll know that you come from another place as if our looks couldn't give it away anyways. But she said, then you'll, they'll know, and then they'll try and kidnap you. And so we were so afraid. Like, we need to pray, we need to pray. And all of our prayers were directed at our safety, that we'd come back alive. This year as we went, we had a little bit better idea of what we were going to be doing and a little bit better idea of what it was going to be like. That five-minute boat ride was really about, maybe about 30 seconds, right? 30-second boat ride. Uh, a lot of it wasn't really 171, maybe divided by two, about 85 degrees, 85 and a half perhaps. It was very nice out there. And so we had a picture of what we were going to be doing. And so this year, so much more of our hearts were into praying for the people of Lombaki and praying for the people of Sinangwe. I think all of that affected the way we saw the people there. All of that was, was, was uh, affected even the reception of the people when we got there. These people were increasingly becoming dear to us, and we were beginning to love a people that some of the folks, six of the folks on our team had never before met, and yet our hearts were beginning to gravitate in love towards them. And we felt in a very similar way, like the church in Thessalonica, that they didn't have a pastor. In the area that we went to, there were six churches, and none of them had a pastor. None of them had a pastor. The 88 churches in the denomination, and Isaac will share this in his testimony, but I'll, I'll, I'll steal his thunder real quick. 88 churches in the deno- denomination, only 20 of them have pastors. So of the six that we are working with, none of them have pastors. It's in a very remote area. Missionaries hardly go up there. Itinerant preachers hardly go over there. So we went to this place, and they've got one guy, a guy named Jose Mejia. And he just basically goes around, and he is overseeing all of these different churches as kind of a lay leader there. So we got into town, and we knew the makeup of our team. We had two ladies, and we have eight guys. And usually, you know, we're doing things like body worship and skits, and like I mentioned in our commissioning Sunday, we are not the team to do body worship. We're not the team to do skits. 
Like we know some good ones, but we're not very good at executing them. And so every time we had, I had to watch body worship and skit practice, it was very painful. Oh my gosh, this is hard. I don't know if we're, we're practicing and spending all this time doing this because we're not naturals at it, right? Doing all this stuff and we're not naturals at it. And yet we're spending so much time and I wonder if we're ever going to be able to use this because I don't know if this is going to be a blessing to anybody. But still, we, you know, we did it and we practiced. And we... But, but we've got a lot of big guys on our team. And yeah, I, I think we know what our strengths might be. We've got a couple ladies and they're, you know, they've got their own particular strength and things. So we kind of had in our mind, this is, um, you know, God may use us in, in these ways. So we, got, we get, flew into Quito, got there at 7.30, slept that night, played some Jenga and, and had some team bonding time and asked, uh, did a lot of sharing that night, prayed and went to bed. And then the next morning we woke up and we did this crazy drive uh, up north to uh, Lumbaki. So the plan that night, we should just kind of get some rest because we've been in a car, we've been in, in this bumpy, rocky, curvy road for a really long time. And so we're like, let's just kind of hang out for the night. Let's, let's pray together as a team. Let's debrief. We got there. Jose Mejia said, the church in Lumbaki is asking if you guys would want, if you guys would lead a worship service. So we said, sure, you know, we'll do it. Whatever you want us to do, we'll do since that's why we came and we don't, you know, we can rest when, when we have time to rest. And the more he began to share with us about what was going on in the church in Lumbaki, the more we realized that there's something very specific that the Lord wanted us to do. He was telling us that just two days earlier, just two days earlier, there was a young man, a young policeman, part of the church, who was hit by a, a stray bullet, and he died. And two days ago, they buried this young man. And the whole church was in just utter confusion. They were in, in grief. They were in mourning, and they didn't know what they were supposed to do. Remember that there's no pastors in this area. So they said, you know, we want to we cremate uh, our son. And so this grieving family started mentioning this to church members, and these church members were very superstitious but not very biblically grounded, just began reaming them and railing them, telling them, how dare you think about cremating your son? How dare you do that? Not knowing that there's no biblical prescription against that. They said, how dare you? And so this, this family in grief was just being poured on with all of this, all of this weight, not only of the loss of their son, but of the, the, the ridicule and the criticism of all these church members. And so in the, in the midst of this kind of, of tragedy, in the midst of this kind of heartache, there was no one who ever spoke the message of hope, no one who ever spoke the message of the gospel into that situation. And so they're reeling and so Jose Mejia is like, will you guys come and will you lead a worship service for us? And as God only could divinely orchestrate, we had a person on our team who had experienced something very similar less than a month before. And James Ye also uh, understood what it was to lose someone at a young age. And so with about 30 minutes, James said uh, to prepare, he said, you know what, I'll, I'll share my story. I'll share my testimony. As he went up there, he spoke as one who understood the pain and the grief of those people, and yet who had a hope that was such deeper, something that they hadn't heard of. And he spoke with, with a hope and a conviction that I will see my brother again because he put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to be the forgiver of his sins. And as he, he spoke gospel, as he spoke truth, as he spoke hope into the hearts of people, that was the very message that they've been dying to hear. As our team did body worship to worthy is the lamb, and, and, and as I shared from the gospel of John of, uh, of the message of Jesus Christ being the resurrection and the life, afterwards we had an invitation altar call, and, and those who want to give their lives to Jesus Christ, and everyone in the pews, about 20-some people came out, and every single one of them, including their lay pastor, Jose Mejia, said, I want to give my life to Christ. Because we were, 
we were willing to share not only our gospel with them, but to share our very lives with them. To share the very thing that was the most painful thing in, in, in his life. Being willing to share that so that hope might flow into the lives of other people. One of my professors used to say that whenever a non-Christian loses somebody, a Christian loses somebody as well so that the world can see the difference in how they handle it. Whenever a non-Christian loses a home, a Christian loses a home so that the world can see the difference. Whenever a non-Christian gets cancer, a believer gets cancer, so that the world can see how radically different the response to hardship is. And as the Lord was just speaking and ministering into that place, and that's kind of the paradigm of what we were doing this week, sharing the gospel of God, but sharing our lives as well. Later that night, there was a girl named Paulita. She was a young woman. I don't know how old she was, but uh, she, was, she came and she said, I, I, I need someone to talk to. She was depressed. She was suicidal. She had a child out of wedlock, lived with her mother who was constantly criticizing her, making fun of her, telling her she's worthless. She, all she does is basically go to work and comes home, and that's all she does. No hope in her life. And she said, you know what? I, I, I want to end my life. What hope is there for me? And so as I'm uh, sitting and there's like five translators around me and we're, we're talking and, and just sharing the gospel and, and sharing the hope of Christ with her, that God sets the lonely in families, that he weeps with us so that we might laugh with him later and just sharing all of these things and say, what would you like to do now? The choice is yours because there's a, a, a handle on the inside of your heart and the door is, the, the choice is yours. She said, I want to give my life to Christ. I want to know this hope. And she, gave, she, she prayed this prayer to give her life to Christ and after that, this huge smile just came apart across her face. And she who was so quiet and stoic and silent, the entire ride home, she was talking about, how does this, how do, how do I do this, and how does God do all this stuff? And she's talking, and she left. She gave everyone in the car a big hug, and she went into her home. And that began our, our trip. That began our, our, our mission trip in Ecuador. And throughout uh, the trip, God constantly showing up and doing things. And, and whether it was in, in proclaiming the gospel or whether it was just in the things that we did, the next day, we woke up, and we were planning to cross the river and to go into Sinangwe to meet the Kofan people. You remember last year, we went and crossed the river and did this, um, laid the foundation for the church building for the handful of believers there. The next day, we, we were planning to go across the river again, and the river had risen so high that we couldn't go. And our, our last image of the people of Sinangwe were just little children waving at us as we turned around and, and had to go back. And so that Tuesday... We went uh, ready to cross the river, three rivers that we needed to cross. Um, usually the first two we just drove through in our SUVs, four by four Jeeps, but this time it was that first river that was too high, so we couldn't even cross that first time. So we turned around, there's other churches to work with, so we worked with this church called Cabana, just knocking on people's doors, a few of them, a few of the leaders, and said, hey, we're going to come back tonight, we're going to cut people's hair. We're going to have a worship service, special service. And along the way, uh, we got to do some really cool things. There's a person who was making sugarcane juice out of sugarcane trees, and you'll see pictures of it. And we got to take part in, in, in making our own sugarcane juice. It was very cool stuff. And, and, and this crazy contraption that they use out in the jungle um, with, with, with gears, and, and basically, you'll see pictures. It's better to, to see it than for me to explain it. But then we went back to, this, uh, to the church in Lumbaki that we were at Monday night, and they had a very uh, interesting situation happen. It's not really that funny, but it is kind of. But uh, they, in their church, they've got a bathroom and they had a sink. And someone broke into their church and stole the kitchen sink from the church. 
And so they said, we need some protection here, so we need to uh, set up a fence. We need to build a fence. And so that's what we did. We built a fence there, and um, mixing cement and tying these different things, and um, not things that we're used to doing, but seeing these big guys like Bill Lee and Isaac and, and Mr. James and Andrew and, and me, and <laughs> just kidding, not me, but seeing other people, right, real strong guys lifting and mixing and doing all this stuff, it was just kind of a, it, verse 9, you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship, working night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. These guys working hard, and on the inside, the ladies cutting hair. It was a beautiful thing where this church became the happening place where, where people from all around were coming, and, and they're getting their hair cut by Bill's mom, Mrs. Lee, and, and she was cutting hair and highlighting, and, and, and Julie, Pastor Goose's wife, was learning how to highlight, and where Miss Lee would do it in about 10 minutes. She was taking about an hour and a half, and people's hair is burning because she's learning on the spot. And <laughs> it's really funny though, but they came out and they're like, wow, you know, I really liked it. And they would, they would come back and they would bring all of their friends. And the gospel is going forth, not only in, in words, but in deed. And people are, are beginning to see that the church does something more than just talking. It's meeting our needs and, and bringing beauty into a place uh, of ugliness. Not that these women were ugly, but bringing, creating beauty. That's what the kingdom does. And so later that, uh, that day, we went to uh, this other place in, in Cabena. It's about maybe a 300-yard stretch of street. And we just knocked on people's homes and said, hey, we're missionaries from Florida. We came because God loves you. We want to tangibly show that love. We're going to have a special program for children and for adults, and we're going to cut people's hair. They're like, how much? We're like, it's free. And so they're like, all right, we'll be there. And so they came. And it was really neat to, to see Pastor Goose, who was um, in college. He was one of my, my personal barbers, and he would you know, cut my hair and and, and other people's hair, and just seeing how now, many years later, just all that being used, and, and, and as we were cutting hair, and, and outside, most of our team was doing children's ministry, and, and dancing, and laughing, and playing, and making bracelets with these children, and, and singing songs, and the inside PG was preaching, and in the back of the sanctuary, uh, Mrs. Lee was, was cutting hair. It's just a beautiful, beautiful intertwining of the gospel of words and the gospel indeed. And as People lined up. So many people were there that we were running out of time and running out of light to cut hair. Some of these people who had their haircuts would, would stick around for the worship service, and there was about eight people in the service. And every single one of them said, in all of our years living in this 300-yard stretch, three-football field stretch, I've never been to this church before. And yet the reason I came was because you guys were cutting hair. So they got their haircuts and these newly dolled-up women and these newly highlighted men's hair. As the gospel was being preached, invitation was given, and every single one but one of these people said, I need Jesus in my life. What a beautiful picture of meeting needs in word and in deed. And then we went home that night, we slept, and we talked about it, and we woke up the next morning, and then we finally were able to cross the river uh, in Sinangwe to get to the Kofan people. And it was a beautiful, beautiful reunion for us. But our intention, last year we started building the foundation of, of the church, this year, the progress that was made, they basically put a roof up, right? put a roof and some, some structural stuff. In. And our task was to move 1,000 cinder blocks. This is, a, again, about 300 yards. We had to move about 1,000 cinder blocks, each of them weighing almost five pounds each. This is like two tons that we're moving. It was not, it's not that, you know, some of you are like, five pounds, that, that's nothing. I do five pound, you know, dumbbells, no problem. But we had to move a thousand, a thousand of these. This is a lot. This is a lot of poundage here. Not only was it just three hundred yards; it wasn't a straight shot. But here's the here's the the path that we had to take. They were the place they were stacked was about I'd say maybe thirty yards away from the river bank. 
The first thing we had to do, we had to move all of these down to the riverbank. Okay, that's one move. The second move we had to do, take it from the riverbank through a river that we would walk in, about uh, maybe thigh-high water, right? Thigh-high water. We're carrying these bricks, cinder blocks. Some of us are tripping because the rocks are wet and we're wearing boots and um, there's no traction and, and the, the current is pretty strong. So we're just kind of like, you know, doing like this and carrying these bricks over. And we put them into this little island in the middle. From there, we took them from where they were to the other side of the island. From there, we put them from that side of the island into a canoe, from the canoe over the river, from the canoe onto the uh, other bank. Then from there, we had to take it up a hill, which was probably about, I'd say it was about, uh, maybe about, another 30 yards uphill. But it was about a 60-degree climb. And you'll see, again, you'll see pictures, so you don't believe me, trust me. You'll see the pictures. Take it up there, and, and our shoes are all wet, and we've got to go up through this muddy terrain. And then once we got to the top of the hill, we had to take it another 150 yards uphill, finally laying down at the, at the church place. And all of our shirts were completely dirty. Everyone was spent. People were cut up everywhere. But as we are doing it, there was such a uh, such a joy as we're doing it. Right, part of the way in the, in the river, the first day, we set up an assembly line, and we're like, here's the best way to do it. We're just like tossing these five-pound bricks. It was just like this. We catch it, toss it. Catch it, toss it. It was just like a, a crazy thing. And, and we knew that as we were doing this, like we are passing bricks that are going to build the foundation of a church building for these Kofan people. It was such an amazing experience that we got to be part of something like that. And then that night we went back and we went back to Cabena, the place where uh, we were the night before because there were so many people who couldn't get their hair cut. And they said, we want our hair cut too. And they demanded haircuts. So, so, all right, we'll cut your hair. Another thing that happened the night before was that the actual church members, remember the eight people who were there never went to church before. The actual church members came tardy. So they came at the end of service. They're like, where's our service? So we said, okay, we'll have a service for you guys also. This was Wednesday night. So again, same thing happened. Worship going on in the front, in the back, you hear the buzz of clippers. Very cool stuff. And at night, um, we were doing Worthy is the Lamb. And um, I, uh, Mrs. Lee cutting hair, she didn't do it, and I didn't do it because I needed to be the sound technician. So I was in the back standing there doing the sound and miking up our, our little boom box and watching Worthy as a lamb. And it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. I think it was beautiful because I was watching it from behind. I didn't have to see their front, but I was watching it from behind. And as I was watching this and, and, and all of our team members in front of me were singing the words, it was like this, this, this huge sense of like all of that throwing these bricks. Like we're understanding that we're doing this because worthy is the lamb who was slain for us. Worthy is the lamb. And one day when we see him, we'll see that this is just our part our joyful part in doing the work of God that his kingdom might be built. At night, we had a time to pray for all who came and a really beautiful time, the spirit of God moving and, and ministering amongst the people and they're just filled with gladness and, and then we left. And then Thursday came, we did again the same thing. Sinangwe pr- tried to bring the rest of these 500 uh, blocks over. We couldn't finish the task, but we at least put them, uh, got them on the other side of, uh, of the mountain so that uh, the Kofan people could, could lift them up and take them. They're a whole lot stronger than us, even though they're a whole lot smaller, uh, but they're really strong. And so they would finish the task, and they said, next year, when this building is built, we want you guys to come and to be there for the inauguration service so that you can bless this, so that you can bless the, the ministry of the church here uh, in, in Sinangwe. And that's how our, our trip went. Then we went to Lumbaki that last night, 
uh, did a children's program, and we know, we're like, dude, this is our last day here, but we haven't done any of our skits yet. <laughs> we haven't done anything yet. Like, oh, man, there's, um, since we practice them, let's go ahead and do them. So we did this skit about a, a chair that represented sin, and we did this one about a heart and how God loves us, and, and we acted out the story of Jonah for the little children, and, and the funniest thing happened that these people, uh, our, our missionaries and our translators, were like, you know what? Um, what we really appreciate about your team were the skits. We're like, what? Like, your skits were so good. Like, you obviously have not seen skits before, but thank you. Praise God. And, and even the, the, the broken things that we did, God used them all for his purposes. He used them all for his glory. And the church in Lumbaki was so encouraged and so touched that they asked if they could make us a dinner and, and literally killing the uh, pets in their backyard, killing the chickens and making us food and giving us this, this, this meal that was truly a labor of love from them to us. And then that night, we had a closing worship time, we had a closing service, and different members of our team shared Bible verses that were um, important to them. And, and each of our folks, um, many of them shared, and others shared their testimony throughout the night. And we closed out our time playing basketball and playing soccer with them and laughing and just having a whole bunch of just grand moments of making memories with these people. And I think this year was a really special time of seeing God's work take place. And the hearts of the people this year were so much more wide open than they were last year. We anticipate that if we do go back, that they would be even more so. And so our trip went, and every night I would put my head down to sleep, and I'd be thinking about Olivia and thinking about Manny and wishing that they could be with me or wishing that I could be with them. And so um, even though the week was long and it was really actually short, it felt long because I wanted to be with my family. And so every night I'd sleep and I would think about what would it be like at the airport when I get back? I know Olive is going to be excited to see me and maybe we'll do some PDA and stuff like that. And I think, well, but what about Manny? I think this is the longest that she's been apart from her papa. And so I, I had these scenarios in my mind. The first one is that uh, we'd come through out of the, the terminal and there'd be these people waiting for us, and then Manny would be so excited. She, she would say, Daddy, Daddy, and then she would give me a hug, and my heart would melt, and I'd be so happy, and everything else would fade into the background. That was the first scenario. The second one, I said, well, I don't want to get my hopes too high because it may not happen that way. So I said, here's the, here's the other thing that could possibly happen, is that Olive will be there, and she'll have her like, little ergo carrier, and Manny will be knocked out, and Olive will be happy, and then she'll say, shh, Manny's sleeping. And so I'll be, okay, I'll have to wait a little bit. These are the two scenarios. We came out of uh, the tram at the airport, and we're walking, 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 and none of these scenarios, and I could have never imagined what, my, what the response would be. I get there, I see Olive, gave her a hug, and then I saw Manny, and Mary, Manny just stared at me. I was like, Manny, it's Daddy, come here. And she's like, she kept clinging to Mom. I was like, don't you remember who I am? It's me, Dad. I, I, I'm part of the reason why you're here. I helped to create you. It's me, remember? We're like, we're cool like that. And she just stared at me, and I tried to forcibly take her. She started crying, so I gave her back. And I was thinking, wow, that's not what I envisioned would happen. And then I thought about John chapter 1, verse 12, and it talks about the Father, our God, and how he sent Jesus into the world, the creator coming down in human flesh. And the word of God says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And yet to all who believed in him, yet to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then I was reminded, this is why we do what we do. 
Because there's so many people who's, who's, who's have no idea of the father who loves them and how the heart of the father breaks when these children don't recognize him as they're not only their maker, but as their father, their lover, the one who gave up everything so that they could be where they are. And I thought about the things that we did, and I thought about all of the, 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 the people who are praying for us, and I thought about why we do all these things, and I was reminded of, of a story that was told by one of the pastors as, he was, as we were leaving the Kofan people in Sinangwe that last day, and he was telling, remember, do you remember, and there's only one person who remembered, but he said, do you remember the very first missionary, the very first time the gospel came to your village? It was a Caucasian missionary, and he came in the 1980s. It was so hot that summer that he took off his shirt, and he was walking, and somehow he hit a a tree, and he hit a beehive with it, and 50 bees attacked him and stung him all over his body, and he was flipping out, and he was in such pain, he dove into the river, and when he came out of the river, he was miraculously healed. And from there, he climbed up that mountain, and he shared the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with the Kofan people, and that was the first time the gospel went forth, and, and just a handful of Kofan believers. And there was one man there, one man there who knew that man, who remembered it. I was thinking, this is the legacy that we stand in. This is why these people do this, because there's a father who loves his people so much that he gave his one and only son. And I was thinking as we were driving, that we're just an hour and a half away from this town, from this city where the great missionary Jim Elliott went in the 1950s with five of his friends to the Waodani people, the Alka Indian tribe there. His mission was to love them and to give himself to them, this cannibalistic people whose mission in life, whose motto in life was either kill them first or be killed. And as they, they, they rode in this little Cessna airplane, dropping gifts down to build trust with them, finally one guy said, I want to ride with you. And so he rode with them. And they thought that they'd build relationship with this guy, but this guy would go down. And then he lied to the other members of the Indian tribe about the intentions of these American missionaries. And so the next time this plane landed, these five men were met by Alka Indians, 10 of them who speared them and killed them all. Before the age of 29, Jim Elliott gave his life for the kingdom of God. And seven years before his death, he said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I'm thinking that this is the legacy that we're standing in. This is a heritage that we're standing in. This is the small chain link that we stand in of missionaries who went to that northern region of Ecuador to share the gospel of hope with the people of God. Why is it that people crossed over these rivers? Because there was another bridge. There was another gap that was un- unbridgeable. There's another chasm that could not be crossed. It was a chasm between God and sinful humanity. And yet God sent his son to be the bridge to the father. That all who would believe, that all who would give their lives to Jesus Christ could have a relationship with God. That's why we go. That's why we cross these rivers. That's why we give all that we have. And the message that we bring to the Kofan and Sinangwe, to the people of Lumbaki, the people of Kabanya, and to the people in our schools, our workplaces, our families, our neighborhoods, is be reconciled to God because he loves you, because he came to give you life. That's the message of hope. That's why we live. That's why we're alive, and that's why we exist. And so I challenge you, encourage you, thank you, for the work that you've done for the sake of the gospel as it goes forth in Ecuador and in our lives. But the work is not done. The harvest indeed is plentiful. The fields are wide unto harvest and the workers are few. And the call that he's giving to each one of us is that we would rise up to the call and say, Lord of the harvest, send me forth into the harvest field to do your work. Let's pray together. Let's take a moment to 
First of all, give thanks to God for the work that he did in Ecuador, the work that he did through your prayers, through your finances, through your going, because apart from your efforts, the kingdom of God, the gospel of God could not have gone forth. Without God, we can't, but without us, he won't. So let's give thanks to God for the work that he did, and then let's begin to pray. Lord of the harvest, where is it that you're sending me? Maybe it's on a short-term trip next summer. Maybe it's on a trip to China and, uh, and, and to North Korea next month. Maybe it's to my school. Maybe it's to this friend at work. Maybe it's to this teacher that I have been burdened for and I've been praying for. Maybe it's in my college campus, wherever that might be. Let's pray, Lord, where would you have me go? Lord of the harvest, send me forth. Send me forth. Let's take a couple moments to respond to his word in prayer. And then I'll close for this time in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not left the forgotten peoples alone, but that you stir the hearts of your children to realize that we're not your children simply to receive the love of the Father, but that we might rise up in that love and to go forth to bring others into the family of God. We pray that just as you comfort the disturbed, that now you would disturb those of us in here who are comfortable where we are, that you would help us to know that by giving up our comfort, we can offer the godly consolation and comfort that can only come through the gospel of Christ. So shake us and move us, help us to see that nothing that we give for you is too much, that nothing that we give to you is a sacrifice in light of the beauty and the worth of who you are. Help us to sing along with the countless throngs around the throne, that you are indeed worthy. Help us to see that we're part of a heritage that includes the blood-bought, blood-shed martyrs who now stand with you in heaven. We pray that you would help us to see that this is our family, that this is our legacy. Help us to boldly go where you call us to go. For indeed worthy are you, O Lord, to receive our offering. We thank you, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name.